0: So therefore, be proud to be a decent American, rather than be just a don't wanker don't. whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace. And hit them hard. That's part of the game. It's not chess we're playing.
1: I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double
2: champ does what the...
3: Hello welcome to chapter 77 of What's a Story podcast. My American is struggling already. Sorry, <laughs> just you just got to start <laughs> coughing. <Copeland. laughs> Sorry, Hello. Yeah, all good. <laughs> My name's Danny Murray. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even talk struggling now? Struggling yourself. So you've got giddy now because you've been talking for about a half hour about whole <laughs> yeah. stories. I'll try that again. My name's Danny Murray. Graeme American, how are you? Great, how are you? I'm I'm fantastic, man. Um, I guess this week you'd have to go all the way back to chapter three for the last time you joined us. And it's arguably one of the most popular episodes we've had. But Paul Howard, thank you very much for coming back to Pleasure. us.
0: Pleasure. Pleasure. I think I talked so much the last time you had to do it in two or something, didn't you? <laughs> no, we well, t-
1: just lost track of the time. <laughs> yeah. <like laughs> you were like, oh no, Mary's going to kill me. It's <laughs> ten past twelve. <12."
3: laughs> so then we made the executive decision. We got, do you know what? We'll split that and we'll make that two-parter. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. I we'll talk work.
0: so long I jet lag when I got home. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: we were loving it
1: though we were
0: like <laughs> it
3: was amazing yeah, amazing. Um, and the reaction even now today even people still said, oh, I went back and listened to that Paul Harold, and that was amazing thanks very much I'll pass that on okay. I'll take all the glory for myself that Well, stop amazing. me if I
0: start saying all the same stuff said the last one one of the lads, <laughs> yeah. the
3: lads uh,
1: would text us uh, every one of the lads Gary he would text us every couple of weeks say just going back to chapter 3 lads yeah. just oh, to listen to it. it again he loved oh, the stories nice there. It.
3: it is um but well, that's what happens in Airbally black legends. You see, that's the, the, <laughs> the people come out and they support their own, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, and we're, we're no longer in, in a gym in Glenageary. We've tried to this make is a little lovely, little bit, by the way. Yeah, it's yeah. Fitzpatrick's.
0: The, yeah, yeah. The, I used to come here when I was a kid because the footballers used to all stay here, you know. Yeah. And uh, we used to go on the hop from Lawrence's and uh, hang around outside trying to get autographs. So like, you know, Brazil were here in the summer of eighty seven and you had like Carlos and Josie Mar and everything were staying here, you know. Still have all these pictures of me with all these no way. <laughs> I'm, I'm tiny like, you know, scrawny little kid like, you know. I, <laughs> we were all kind of skinny in those days, you know, and uh <laughs> and uh had I had you had no, big glasses? No, no, I had no glasses on. I no? used I went through a period of fantasy when I when I I tried to leave them off, you know. But I'm I'm cross I'm I'm cross eyed like you know when I take my glasses off one of me I, I have a wonky eye one of them turns in and so all these photographs is just me <laughs> <with> honky eyes <laughs> with my arm around Josie Mary you know this huge he's like high tower at the police academy or something
1: you and have to put them so up on Twitter
0: yeah all right I will yeah yeah, yeah. and then some Scotland played here and. Bulgaria but anyway some of them some of them were better than others like we'd be outside waiting for the Bulgarians like and, <laughs> and every we didn't know who any of them were like every single name ended up with O.V. <laughs> and uh but that's what I thought of when I came in here tonight when I walked through Really? the door yeah I just thought about all those days Did you ever I get I should caught have been at school um, <clears throat> while getting autographs? No no actually my mother my mother used to write me notes uh to get me off school early and um Mr. McGuinness liked the notes for their frankness. like you Because know, my mother would never say, she'd never pretend I had a dental appointment. Like She'd always just say, can you let Paul off early because he wants to go to Fitzpatrick's castle to get the autographs of the Bulgarian football team. <laughs> like, that's what they would typically say. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Frank could just look at these and go, he just talk t- t- to himself, laugh and shake his head and then say, go on, off you go. And uh, there was one time... The Virgin Megastore was opening, right? And it was, that was 85. And me and a friend of mine, who I was in school with Jonathan Mead. We decided, there was rumors that Bruce Springsteen and Madonna were going to open the Virgin Megastore in Dublin. Like, why we believed that for a minute, I don't know. And uh, so we got off. Jonathan went on a hop and I got one of these notes. Like, you know, which, like the same thing. Like, ever spelled out in literal terms. He wants to go and get Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> and Donna's autograph. And Frank McGuinness is looking at this and he goes, Ha, ah, okay, okay, off you go. So we went in and uh, you know, surprise, surprise, they never showed up. But that would have been kind of sort of typical of those days, you know. Who did
1: like, show up though Do you remember?
0: Luca Bloom, I think. Lovely. I think it was Luca Bloom. No disrespect to Luca, but
3: when the realm was Bruce, no, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: Bruce Springsteen's the boss. Luca's The foreman or something (laughs) like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or he's the fella who the boss leaves in charge, you
2: know.
3: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'd imagine that the Brazilians and the Bulgarians enjoyed a a great meal from the dungeon bar and grill here in Fitzpatrick's. Anyway, see plug plug in, yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh yeah, and even on the yeah. way in, the smell coming yeah. from the dungeon was just <laughs> delicious. I, in fact I'll be heading there after we finish yeah. here, you know, for Man, to no see what's on goes the goes right before and after. Yeah, all the time. All the oh, time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Check out
3: Fitzpatrickcastle.com for more. Um normally we do a whole housekeeping thing, but we're not gonna bother because we just uh we've we've so much to talk to you about. But first um it's not so new anymore but it's still quite fresh. I read the news today. Oh boy, award winning! Yeah, yeah. Congratulations!
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not. I mean, the award is really nice. You know, <clears throat> um, it's great to get it. But for me, it was it was just a privilege to to be the one to to get to tell that story. You know, and yeah. um, I, I was interested. in It's the story of Tara Brown, and I was interested in Tara Brown for you know as long as I've been a Beatles fan, which is from the time I was about 10 years of age, you know, maybe younger.
1: You were just in the entire <coughs> realm since 10 years yeah, of age. Yeah, I,
0: well, I, was in, I didn't know his name then, but the song, you know, the song A Day in the Life, which is the song that closes Sgt. Pepper. And my dad had Sgt. Pepper, the original from the 60s. You know, my mum my, my and dad kind of left Ireland in 62, I think. And they lived in London throughout that, era swinging London era you know I mean they weren't in they weren't in the clubs <laughs> swinging but um you know neither were most people you know it was a the swing in London was probably only about a thousand people but it's like any of these movements like the punk movement or Brit pop it's you know it, it's it's um influence gets felt throughout Britain in the way people dress and the way they speak and the music yeah. they listen to and their attitude and stuff like that so they would have been there um in London and um so w- consequently we grew up in a house where it was just 60s music all the time you know we we um and it was always referred to as the music of the good old days you know my mom and dad always said oh, that's the good old days so i kind of grew up um was just strangely nostalgic for this period i didn't grow uh, didn't grow up in i didn't live through you know i was mm-hmm. and even today it's 60s music for me my first instinct when i get up in the morning you know is like you know, I don't. I don't really know anything about music after about <laughs> after about 1988. You know, <clears throat> and um, so, so many are still in for Kajagoogoo, then.
3: Like that's alright. Oh yeah,
0: I, I copped the end of the Kajagoogoo <laughs> era, and uh, but um, you know, but any anything after around sort of eighty eight, eighty nine. That's it, it's yeah. you know, I, I'm not as interested in that. I don't find it as interesting as that earlier stuff. Um, but that song, I mean, that album, <clears throat> what drew me to it first was it had a, a card inside and there was all these cut out things on the card. Like, so it was a, a Sergeant Pepper mustache and then the epaulettes and, you know, medals and stuff like that. And they were cut out and keep things, you know, they were kind of, but I don't think anyone really cut them out. They were collector's items. So as a child, I kept being drawn to the album because I wanted to cut these things out. And, um but then I listened to it. I, I must've been, you know, nine or 10 the first time I listened to it and, the the songs that got me first were, you know, things like When I'm 64, you know, mm. kind of sugary songs that were easy to listen to. And then I heard A Day in the Life for the first time and, um, and I was just blown away by it. It was like, I think that might have been the day I discovered music, you know, yeah. like properly. And that picture that John Lennon paints in the opening lines of that song, you know, I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. Who, and then he blew his mind out in the car he didn't notice that the lights had changed and then this this scene you know this um, young man dead at the wheel of a car and all these rubberneckers watching and saying you know they they nobody knew if he was from the House of Lords you know and, and we're rubberneckers when you're listening to the song <clears throat> John Lennon is including you among the witnesses to this mm. accident so you're just wondering who he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking. I wonder. I wonder who this is about, and and then in time, I, I became aware that it was um, about an Irish man, and his name was Tara Brown, and it was a it was a real life accident that John Lennon had read about in the newspaper um, on a day when he was looking for inspiration for a song, and then I just sort of started probing into the story. It was Tara's 40th anniversary. Um, so it's ten years ago because he's fifty years dead this weekend. Yeah, this as this yeah, podcast this goes out. Yeah, yeah, and um, so yeah, I, I started. I, I did that. I did a piece with Gareth Brown, his brother, and Gareth is a great patron of um, of Irish music in Ireland. You know, he's behind the Chieftains and um, Claddagh Records is his label, and he helped revive. Oh, really? Yeah, he helped revive Irish music in was the. Was that 60s. the guy that was at the book launch? yeah Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Like lovely.
0: Uh, suit so it's like tweed yeah, he wears irish tweed and yeah. Um, yeah he's and he's extraordinary you know he, he when you when you think back that irish music traditional irish music was was almost dead in the late 50s you know it was considered a very twee thing you know you couldn't buy a traditional irish music album uh, that didn't have leprechauns on the cover or oh, shamrocks right. or you know yeah. uh, rainbows and stuff like that and it it was only really American people bought it you know nobody in Ireland bought it and um, he had this idea that he would he would kind of make it cool again and and he went around the country uh, with Taro when Taro was very very young Taro was probably um, maybe 10 and they went around the country Gareth was 16 Taro was 10 and they went into all these old you know Irish cottages and they recorded um, music you know the storytellers uh, Shannon singers, um, pipers, all this music that had been that was had been forgotten, you know, and um, and they they recorded those, and then they started pressing records and putting them out, but they didn't look naff, you know, they didn't have that kind of stage Irish mm. thing. Mm. They the Hollywood Ireland, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. The the Quiet Man and all mm. that kind of thing. Garrett's ambition was that they should be as cool. As, as a Rolling Stones record they should look like a Rolling Stones record so you have these early uh, Chieftain's records which they're black and white covers you know and they're, they use shadows and silhouettes and amazing they just and they were they were something that people wanted to have so that was sort of Garrett's contribution to it and to the Irish music scene and to Irish life I suppose as well you know because this this music would certainly be be dead without him Um but I interviewed Gareth on the Tara's fortieth anniversary, and uh, you know, it, uh, the piece I wrote, I wasn't happy with it. You know, and 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 it happens when you're a journalist that sometimes you you just don't have the time to do justice to a subject, and that was the case with that with that interview I did. Uh, you know, I, I, I the piece kind of touched on all the biographical details of Tara's life, so you know, I mentioned the fact that. You know, at twenty-one, he was married, two children, divorced. Had a clothes shop on the King's Road. Had a car painted. You know, the sports car he drove around in London that was painted in psychedelic colors, and mm. you know, record player in the dashboard mm. that used to put forty-fives on it, and the needle would scratch across if he hit a bump. You know, and in all this car. stuff. And then he, and then he, you know, we introduced Paul McCartney to LSD, and was friends with the Rolling Stones. So I got all of this stuff in. But I just felt the piece was kind of missing a bit of the soul of the man. I kind of felt that I didn't get there, you know. And anyway, what often happens when you do a piece for a newspaper, you're pressed for for time and you have to go to press with it. And then in the weeks afterwards, people who I'd requested interviews from started to return my calls. And it was all this, you know, God, such a shame you didn't get to talk to me before because I could have told you this, this and this. And then um, I got a call from um, Mike McCartney, um, who's Paul McCartney's brother. And Mike was in a band in the 60s called The Scaffold, and they sang uh, Lily the Pink. Do you know the song? My mum used to sing this to me when we were kids, you know. Drink, a drink, a drink to Lily the Pink, the oh pink, really? the pink, oh, the yeah. of the human race. That's their song? That's, he wrote that, yeah. And he wrote um, the song that everybody oh, yeah. knows from the Roses ad, which is "Thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much." Oh, yeah. So they were scaffold hits, and he called himself Mike McGear in the sixties, so people wouldn't, wouldn't think he was trying to, you call. know, write his brother's trip. Um, and he said to me, "Oh, it's such a pity I didn't get to talk to you because, you know," he said, "Look, if ever you're in Liverpool, uh, give me a shout, and we'll go for we'll go for dinner, and I'll tell you some stories." So I booked a flight to Liverpool the next day. Just, <laughs> I just said, John Lennon Airport, as it happened, you know. I said, booked a Ryanair flight, If you're went ever. to Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. And, Mike, come here. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, did exactly that, you know. So he took me to this bistro and uh, five hours, like, you know, we were sitting there for five hours. T- he's telling me all these stories. and and were you writing nothing down or were you just... I had a, I had a dictaphone, yeah, and I just put tape after tape after tape in. And... It was while it was that conversation that really convinced me that Tara Brown's story was worthy of a fuller telling because he, he, I hadn't realized it when I wrote the original piece that he was a hugely significant figure in the context of the 60s. And he was yeah. more than what I had painted him out to be in the piece, which was just this social butterfly who fluttered across the London scene and then disappeared. That he, he had, you know, he was. I mean, he was significant, I think, for a couple of reasons. You know, one was because he, at that time in the 60s when social barriers were, were falling down, you know, when you had the royal family were mixing with the rock and roll aristocracy and the crim- the London criminal underworld yeah. and just ordinary people all mixing together in this happy stew um Taro was one of the facilitators of that. He was one of those people in the middle saying...
1: The psychedelics, stew.
0: Yeah. That, yeah, there was... I mean, because drugs were a huge factor, you know. LSD was a huge factor in, um, in breaking down those barriers because, you know, as, some, as one of Taro's aristocratic friends said to me, uh, if you can spend five hours looking at the palm of your hand and seeing how your skin cells are all made up, well, then things like who's a lord, who's a lady, who you know, is 37th in line to the Queen, it, it doesn't matter, you know, you realise that's a completely human construct. Um, and so so I would say LSD was a huge uh, social enabler as well that, that convinced these young people that this stuff didn't matter, being upper class, being lower class, it was completely nonsense.
1: How did someone from Wicklow... Is the, he's Taras from Wicklow, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. How did someone from Wicklow facilitate all like? Well, the royals.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's you know he's he, he wasn't from Wicklow like I'm from Wicklow. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was he was, aristoc- he was aristocratic himself. Yeah. You know, so his father was was a member of the House of Lords. He was Lord Oranmore and Brown. So he was an Irish lord. He was an Anglo-Irish lord, and he lived in Castle McGarrett in County Mayo. Um, and his mother was Una Guinness and she was one of the brewery uh, yeah. dynasty. So he kind of had Irish royalty on both sides, really. Um, but he arrived in London um, when he was... he just turned 17. Uh, it was right in the cusp. He might have been just about 16, but he was just about to turn 17. And he was on his own and he was incredibly sophisticated. He had lived a full life by the time he was about 16. He never went to school. Um, he went to school briefly, actually. He went to a, um, a school in Goatstown called St. Stephen's. Um, and he went there for about 15 or 16 months. And one day he decided he didn't like it. And he got a taxi home, you know, at, a age, taxi. at age 11, you know. <laughs> and this is what they were like. And Gareth, his brother, was in a boarding school in Switzerland. And it was one of these boarding schools where the European royal families sent their children to be educated, you know, and Gareth hated it. You know, he said, you know, him, me and Tara both believe the same thing that if God wanted us to be treated like sheep, he would have created us a sheep. <laughs> so what Gareth did at 14 was he sent himself a telegram, uh, purportedly from his mother saying there's been a death in the family come quickly. <laughs> and the headmaster booked him a flight from Switzerland to, to Ireland. And, uh, Gareth arrived home, age 14, on his own, you know, and his mother thought it was hilarious, you know, and (laughs) and that's what they were, they were kind of raised that way. Una Guinness was very libertarian, you know, she didn't, she didn't believe in, as uh, her niece, the writer Caroline Blackwood said of her, she didn't believe in the tyranny of the clock, you know, there's no, even when you go to Lugalaw now, to the house, there's no clocks anywhere. So you never know what time it is.
1: Like restraint to time and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Like so socialism?
0: Yeah. I mean, what they didn't, they socialized the hours differently, right? So they, they you, you woke up, you got up when you woke up or you got up when the maid came into the room to set the fire, right? <laughs> and then you went downstairs and then there was a tureen of Bloody Mary in the middle of the table and you stuck a glass in and that's breakfast, Um, and oh my goodness and that's how they lived I mean they were they were very very different to to, no one no one was living like that in Ireland at the time and this is De Valera's Ireland you know this is 50s Ireland this is John Charles McQuaid and De Valera's dream Catholic Republic we're living in and 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 they were alone to themselves and so 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 Taran never went to school he was never told when to go to bed Um, he had Unending amounts of money. I mean, in 1958, he was getting, according to his then stepfather, uh, $2,000, the equivalent of $2,000 a month. Um, I mean, that's a lot of money now. Can you imagine what that is in 1958? Um, And then he didn't go to school, but his mother had a kind of... She ran a kind of literary salon up there in Wicklow, up up in the Wicklow Mountains. So her friends... You know were Brendan Bean and Lucy and Freud and Cyril Connolly and um you know Claude Coburn and people like that John Houston she was very good friends with the director John Houston, and they would just come to the house and and he's breathing in their air, you know he's kind of listening to these very very intelligent, very sophisticated, very bohemian people who essentially didn't give a toss what society thought of them, it's, you know, uh, particularly, Brendan particularly Brendan
1: Bean. Particularly <laughs>
0: Brendan Bean, he's very close to Brendan Bean, you know, and he swore like a docker. Tara <laughs> did, you know, in this posh uh, upper class English accent, he swore like an absolute docker, and uh, he. Uh, but but I think because of that, and then his mother took him off to Paris, so we had, he, and they lived there for about three years or four years while she was bankrolling the dressmaking ambitions of her third husband, um, who was a, who was a, a, a bisexual um, uh, former Nazi called Miguel Ferreras, oh And she married him after four weeks. Um, she only knew him for four weeks and she met him in New York and she married him in her suite in the Drake Hotel. So there was a huge amount of that kind of recklessness going on in the family. Um, you're getting all this information with your research yeah your mind was to be blown it was incredible you know and and especially that period you know i thought the paris period was was fascinating because tara at that point he's 14 he's 14 15 and 16 during his paris years and he's friends with all of these much older boys and much older girls who are posh upper class english girls who are attending finishing schools in paris so they're 18 19 perfect bone structure cut glass english accents and and then some posh boys as well who are doing english language courses there and they meet this little lord fauntleroy character you know and he had this blonde hair and i've seen photographs of him at the time. He looks like he's just fallen from the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Like he looks like a cherub, you know, his blonde hair, this helmet of, brown ha- of blonde hair. And he used to wear these velvet suits, like a red velvet suit. So he was kind of like the little prince or something, you know. He looked incredibly young. And he is so sophisticated. He's bringing them to the jazz clubs of Paris, right? And jazz at the time, See jazz now. You go to Starbucks and they're playing jazz, right? You yeah. can go to Starbucks and buy a jazz CD. Uh, jazz in the fifties. If you went home, the guy said to me, "I went the day I told my dad I was into jazz. It was like I just told him I was a heroin addict, because it was so disreputable, you know. And and it had the heroin thing to it as well. That dimension that a lot of these the great jazz uh, players of the time were were were. Heroin addicts, you know. Um, really, all of the greats, you know. They were all, oh, sure, Ray, they are all strung out. Yeah, Ray Charles, yeah, Ray Charles yeah. and and Tara saw Ray Charles play in Paris, you know, and um, and Ray Charles was completely strung out. You know, people like Bud Powell and they were all they were all junkies. And he, um, but Ta- but the, what was amazing was so so he's going to these really really disreputable clubs like that, the basement dives, and he's bringing these posh girls around. And they're having the time of their life, you know. They're in Paris essentially to kill a year before they're ready for the debutante circuit, you know, at which some posh double-barreled guy, double-barreled name guy, is going to propose to them. And then they're going to start a family at 19. And they have this window of a year where they're in the Paris and this charming little kid, he's a child essentially, is bringing them to these jazz clubs. And I've got this photograph of him, and he's sitting in a club called uh The Blue Note in Paris. And he has a cigarette in one hand and a, a very, very large scotch in the other hand. <laughs> and he's listening to Bud Powell at 15, 15, years of age.
1: The confidence out of him.
0: Amazing. I mean, so by the time he got to London, he was just impossibly sophisticated for a a young man. (laughs) He was years ahead of his time in terms of his social development. And so when he arrived in London, it was just about to start swinging. It was almost like he knew he had his Paris years and then he decided London is where I need to be. It was like he knew that, you know, London was on the the verge of this amazing renaissance that was going to change the world musically, politically, Socioeconomically, culturally, in so many ways,
1: it's out, like just listening. Boy, would would Tara have fitted in with the socialites of now, like Kim Kardashian and no, Paris they're, Hilton?
0: they're... I just think they different areas. Dull by comparison, you yeah. Know? They're just they're just dull. I can't and see the Kardashians being almost
3: trendsetters in terms of like going to jazz clubs and no. But when Paul said, you know,
1: when Paul said. Uh, um they're waiting for the de- to graduate to the graduated debutants and the double. Yeah. like that's the kardashians isn't it yeah but yeah, so it the a...
0: the fatal thing about the kardashians is it it's about attention it's about being in the spotlight
1: where the photographers are yeah, yeah.
0: they for didn't them have it that wasn't. Yeah. this is a, this is kind of yeah you had the beatles so so he's he became friends with the with the rolling stones and the beatles in the period before uh it became difficult to get close to them. So for for two or three years, yeah, the Beatles had those sort of screaming hordes of fans, which was known as Beatlemania. Yeah. Uh, but when they went out at night, they could just socialize, you know, they could go to be a themselves. club and, and, and be themselves. And I think that's what Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney and then Brian Jones and Keith Richards were the closest to Tara. And I think what they liked about him was, He wasn't trying to ride their trip. He, 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 you know, he had his status. Yeah, he had had his money. He, you know, huge amounts of money. He didn't need. He didn't need them. But he is just the guy like I said, who's saying Princess Margaret, have you met Mick Jagger? You know, he's that guy. I mean, how, you, you know, for, for social barriers to fall like they did, you needed somebody in the middle to uh, say... As a teenager. Yeah, because otherwise, you've, you've just got loads of posh people against that wall and loads of working class people against that wall. <laughs> and and he's the enabler. He's in the middle because this is what he's learned in his mother's drawing room. Yeah. You know, it, when, if you go, when you go to law you know, you don't, you don't know who's going to be there. I mean, I've been there for dinner and this is just in recent times. And at the table, you could have, you know, Pierce Brosnan, um, uh, Charlotte Rampling, the, uh, you know, the Estonian ambassador to Ireland. And then three travelers that Gareth met up in the Roundwood Inn and one of them mentioned that he plays the Illin Pipes like, you know, and then and oh, that's, that's your believable. dinner. That's your dinner. And it's this mix of people. It's this sort of and and his mother did it, she sort of calibrated these dinners so that there would be the optimum mix of chemicals that would cause an explosion, right? <laughs> so she'd put Brendan Bean beside two unionist ladies, like, you know, and they'd be spouting their unionist stuff. And then being it just, you know, get up from the table and cause a scene. Or, you know, she likes sparks. If there was a row that was the best party ever. Like yeah, The worst thing that could happen was a party could pass off without an incident because that was dull. They had this kind of wicked uh, Oscar Wilde way of looking at the world, you know, this sort of Anglo-Irish way that, that the world is just a series of incidents and anecdotes like, and, and, and that's what they were like. But Tara kind of took that from his mother and Gareth has it now as well, that sort of gift for hospitality. So when and this is another reason why Tara I think is really really important in the context of the 60s when he went to London his muse he had a muse house in um um quite near Sloane Square in London just it's actually just around the corner from Buckingham Palace it's about you know 300 <laughs> yards away from Buckingham Palace of course it is <laughs> and this little tiny muse uh, they after the clubs closed everybody would head back there right so you could have Paul McCartney, Peter Sellers, Roman Polanski. Oh, my goodness. Maybe one or two dodgy criminal types, because Taro was very attracted to criminal. It was that kind of criminal heyday in London at the time. You had the Craze and the Richardsons yeah. um, running London, and they were kind of criminal celebrities. It was the, the era of criminal ce- celebrities. So you'd have um, maybe a member of the Richardson gang, and Tara was maybe doing up a car for him, so, for that might possibly be used in a robbery or something like you know he used to do up cars in a way brilliant with cars, and he'd do an engine up in a way where it could drive for something like hundred and fifty miles an hour for three minutes, and then the engine had just burned to bits, you know um and then you'd so you'd have a few criminals and then you know one or two eccentric aristocratic black sheep, maybe a member of the royal family this is your this is this is your free house. Like they're they're going back and they're drinking they're drinking brandy and they're smoking pot. And they're later on they're taking LSD and they're listening to these great albums that were all released in a three month period in 1966, Pet Sounds, Revolver and Blonde on Blonde, you know, and this is so this is the scene. And Tara's wife, Nikki, she said to me, I'd get up in the morning, I never forget she said this to me, I'd get up in the morning and I go downstairs. And the room would just be strewn with bodies. And she said, I turned them over. And you never knew who was going to be a rolling stone, who was going to be a beetle, who was going to be Jesus. an animal, and who was going to be a pretty thing. Oh, my that God. All these bands, they all gravitated back there, back to that house. So, that, so when, you, when you think of swinging London, you, you, can, you can kind of say Tara's... Tara's Muse House was a was a microcosm of what of what was happening in London. You know yeah. that was a great cross section of all the people <coughs> who made up this happy stew, social stew. It's it's an incredible
3: story, like, and because uh, I I wasn't familiar with it at all. And then obviously, you know, we were fortunate enough to go along to your book launch. Um, and thanks for coming, by the way. No, thanks, thanks for having for us, for having yeah, us. It was brilliant. Um, but like, picked up a copy of it. My ma's reading, it, so I haven't had a chance to read it. <laughs> but I've been googling it, and like, I'm blown away by this guy. Yeah. Like, and I'm kind of sitting there, and I'm like, this is potentially a story or a life that would have been largely missed by so many yeah. people without this book coming along. I'm glad and you
0: said that because I, I kind of felt, I kind of, felt, I read so much about the '60s, so many yeah. books about the '60s, and I, I just felt this was an angle that no one had, had, had. Written, it was an angle nobody had approached the 60s from before, to use this guy um, as a sort of prism through which to view the 60s. Um, and that's what I wanted to do when I found out about him. I think there's something interesting as well in, in, in terms of the timing of his death, because he, he died 50 years ago. So it was December the 18th, 1966. And it was right on the cusp of when the 60s bit, turned bad, you know, that that yeah. it, I think actually I think the end of the sixties, the swinging sixties, you know, what my mum and dad would have called the good old days, was Sgt. Pepper. And you could say that um the sixties ended with that pia- dying piano note on, at the end of a really day, they all life it. Together. Where all the Beatles yeah. and George Martin all slammed down on the on two pianos simultaneously to create that <laughs> effect. And that, I think that is the end. And it's interesting that sort of Tara provided the inspiration for the song I, that I feel ended the 60s because I think his death ended the 60s for a lot of people. Marianne, I interviewed Marianne Faithful for the book and, and she said to me that 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 was, that was the end of it for her, that she, they had felt indestructible. And it's a thing about being young, you know, being 23 years of age and being part of this extraordinary movement. Um, they... They really did feel these young people that they could change the world. They were going to change the world with their positivity and their happy vibes and their pretty clothes. And you got to remember that, you know, you youth, the the concept of it, it was new. You know Mm. that the uh, before the war and in the years immediately after the Second World War, being young, like there was no such thing as a teenager. Really, you know, your teenage years were something you just endured you know there were mm. purgatory a social purgatory that you just put up with between childhood and adulthood mm. and then and then you just went went and became a man or you became a woman and then suddenly the, the, these young people it was like this energy was released um 1961 national service was abolished so they suddenly didn't have a war to fight unlike their parents and their grandparents they didn't have a war to fight they didn't have to do 2 years in the army where you know they were brought up to to that point brought to that point of view that you might need to go out and fight some german people one day you know they they didn't have that yeah. and when national service was abolished suddenly it's like this rock face has just fallen away and they can all see the future got the contraceptive pill came out at exactly the same time completely changed the sexual mores of a generation of young people. They could suddenly have multiple partners. You didn't have to marry the first girl you had sex with, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and don't tell Dev. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell Dev, exactly. Yeah. No, no, with Dev, you marry them, then you have oh, the Dev. sex yeah. <laughs> yeah, <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and then the music, you know, this, all this music and, and and it's no and then it's no coincidence that this came after a big economic boom. There's a huge economic boom. Um in the late fifties in England, like our own Celtic Tiger, suddenly young people had the money. You know, so it was people who were twenty, twenty one, twenty two had the money. So they became the taste masters of their generation. They decided what was going to be in the top ten. So you had the previous generation, they Cliff Richard and people like these, all these kind of Elvis Presley knockoffs were number one in England. Adam Faith and people like that. And when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones came out, even they thought this was. A novelty. They thought they'd only be around for two years, but suddenly youth had the money, you know, and and uh, and they made stars of these people, you know. Um, But Tara died right. That that was an amazing era, and like I said, Tara was a star of it. He was an icon of that era. But I think what made him an icon as well was the fact that he died just before it turned bad. You know, just while these people were still thinking they were going to change the world. And then Tara dies in this car crash, and as Marianne Faithful said, you know, we we suddenly realised that we could be hurt, and that you know it wasn't We're not invincible. Like yeah, it wasn't a game, and um, and it ended the sixties for a lot of people. You know, I, I, quite a lot of people I spoke to in the book said that was it. I just decided, right, life is serious now. I better go and get a job. <laughs> and then this, the the cultural focus of the sixties switched to America and. The 60s became about Woodstock and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it was just a lot darker, like drugs mm. got heavier. And then you had Woodstock, and then you had, you know, Bobby Kennedy's assassination and yeah. Martin Luther King, and you had violence in the street and Vietnam protests, the ramping up of the war in Vietnam. And it became much more countercultural. Whereas the earlier 60s were about fun and optimism, but there Positivity, was none of that yeah. optimism. with And Altamont, the. The Rolling Stones concert at Altamont, where the Hell's Angels went yeah, mad yeah, and killed yeah. a fan, and um, so so when you, if you're looking for you know a period when you know a moment in time where you say that's that's the moment it all changed, you could say it's it's Tara Brown's death, and for a lot of people who knew him, they said they said exactly that.
1: You spent ten years persevering with this. Are you happy with the? Yeah,
0: I am. I mean, look, there's always Is it fair to say
1: persevering, or yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I, I wasn't working on it every day for ten years. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was doing other stuff at the time, but it was nice um, to 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 have a project like this. That w- it was a labor of love for me. Yeah. It really was, you know. And um, and I suppose the success of the Russell or Carol Kelly books um, gave me a little bit of freedom in that, you know, if I, I, could, I could spend a month on it I could, and not you know, and, and know that, you know, I wasn't going to starve this month because yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a Ross book coming out. And, uh, but yeah, I mean... It, I so mean was there was no deadline then, was there? I didn't, I, you know, I didn't even look for a publisher for a long time because I thought as soon as I get a publisher, I'm going to get a deadline and then I have to stop my Pressure. research. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, I, in the end, I spoke to about 110 people for the book and, 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 and I was satisfied that I'd done all the research I could There's always times when you look back on something you write and you read a paragraph and you go, I'd love to write, I'd love to rewrite that differently. Not, not, not in the the sense that the facts are wrong, but you just like to, you know, gild, gild your prose a little bit, you know. Um, But, but no, I'm, 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 I'm really happy with it. You know, I, it's, it is, it's definitely, I look at it and I, it's. I think it's the the thing in my professional life I'm more proud of than anything I've done. Love it. Yeah,
3: it, it, it's deadly. Like, uh, as I, I'm gonna have to actually start putting the kind of the elbow into me man, and be like, <laughs> you hurry up with that? <laughs> it? um, well, it's but, mad because you hate the Beatles? Yeah, I was gonna say because like th- the connection with the Beatles. It's not that I hate the Beatles. I just <laughs> you've been known to say on this pod that they're overrated. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. I have a friend who says they're underrated. <laughs> <laughs> My good friend of mine, Dion Fanning. We were in there. Uh, D- Dion's uh, he writes for Joe a He was with the Sunday Independent for years. Yeah. We were in it. We were in Japan once, and somebody in the hotel lobby were talking about the Beatles, and somebody said that I think the Beatles are overrated, and Dion said I think they're underrated, <laughs> which I think is a great idea, you know. But despite all the praise, it's not enough. <laughs>
3: but um, it, it's mad though, because. Even for, for me, like I'm, am not a big Beatles fan at all. But it's that—that's kind of the hook with this story. That it's this connection to something as big as the Beatles. Yeah. But then, the more that I've, I've heard you talking about it, the more that I've kind of learned from just googling and reading about this guy. You suddenly realise, okay, the hook is the connection with the yeah. Beatles, but but the juice and the meat of it is his life. It's his life. It's yeah. incredible. Like, yeah. It's, Lads, just get out and buy the book. Like, I love, uh, I
1: love the exposure he had to like Brendan Bean, and yeah. I love that Gareth has kept it that tradition. Yeah, with yeah. His with still, his mother, he's like...
0: still. Uh, I mean, the hospitality is just unbelievable when you go and visit the house. You know, um, how old is Gareth now? Gareth is seventy-seven. Wow. He's yeah, seventy-seven yeah. now, um, and. Uh, and in great and in great health, you know, he's um, he's he's in robust good health. They all lived long lives. The Guinnesses, yeah. well, a lot of them did. Um, his mother lived until she was well into her nineties, I think. His dad was one hundred and one when he died. Wow. Um, Gareth and Tara's father, and there's a story about him. He was in the House of Lords, and he'd sat in the House of Lords for seventy two years without ever speaking. He never ever spoke, and. Um, He's the longest serving member of either house in England, like the Lords or the Commons. No one has sat there for 72 years. But Tony Blair abolished hereditary peerages in 1999, I think it was. So he he suddenly didn't have the right to go and sit in the chamber anymore. And he told somebody, you know, oh, that's me. I'm off then. Tootle pip. And he died, you know, not long afterwards, you know, just a matter of months after... Hereditary peerages were abolished because Jesus. he just kind of felt, you know, that very English way, you know, that cricket thing of declaring your innings, you know, yeah. and he just said, that's, that's it.
3: Wow. Jesus. Yeah. That's insane as well. That's that's nuts. It's what the, they seem like just a fascinating, fascinating bunch of people. The yeah. entire thing.
1: Like, it's. But it's it, it, it sounds like that, like, in during that 10-year period and you were getting all the research, you were getting the interviews, it just fe- it just seems like that. You might have been ready to publish something. Oh no, here's more stuff, and I just kept getting that more and
0: yeah, more. Yeah, it was more a case that there was a few interviews I was waiting for, and like Marianne Faithful was one, and Anita Pallenberg was the other. You know, and I just knew they'd be worth it when I finally got them, and Anita was the most difficult to get because you know she's, you know she's married to she was married to Keith Richards. She was. Brian Jones's girlfriend, you know, and, and so she, she kind of has to put distance between herself and the press. I think yeah. that, you yeah. know, the pap- she's been pap- papped a few times by the paparazzi in London and she's very, very wary of the press. And um, so it took me four years to, pers- to persuade her to, to talk to me, you wow. know, and I put notes in her door, went to London, knocked on the door, put notes in the door. <clears throat> I remember sitting in coffee shops on the King's Road in London, just writing that writing cards to her you know and put it in the door and here's my number please ring me and then going back to the coffee shop and sitting there for six hours wondering would she ring and then she didn't and i go back to ireland
1: and said uh, i don't feel bad now when we harass people with tweets yeah,
0: That's the show. yeah 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 <laughs> Jeez,
3: when you say persevered and said that sounds like really yeah, just yeah. persevering like that's and I, it,
0: I mean it's good it kind of reminded me because I, I haven't been a journalist for a lot of years and it kind of reminded me of that old Gum boot work that we used up to, to do, you know, which yeah. is we kind of sitting, sitting like a, a fox looking at a <laughs> looking at a rabbit hole for for <laughs> ten hours in the hope that something would come out of it, you know. And, and we, we we I had, so I so I went back to doing that and just an old fashioned pavement pounding reportage and um, but I enjoyed it, you know. And and
1: and at what stage should you say,
0: Roy Paul? I'll I'll grant you. The um, it was. You know, it's getting to the point, it kind of makes me sad where, uh, you know, a lot of the people I interviewed for the book had died before it, it was published. So, ta- you know, Tara's widow, Nikki, was a great yeah. help to me, she died. And Tara's um, half-brother, Gay Kindersley, the jockey, he died. Um, and I think there were about seven or eight interviewees um died in the space of about two years and I think that's when I thought look I really need to get this together and 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 get it out there so that's when my agent took it to England and um, you know went to various publishers with it and um, Picador Picador were the keenest because I just kind of felt when I I met Paul Bagley who um, is the managing director of Picador he um, he just sort of shared my vision for the book you know he 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 wanted the book to be exactly what I wanted it to be, so that was class.
3: Oh, yes. um, Did you miss
1: Rosser at all?
0: Um, well, because you didn't really give him up. I didn't. No, no. I still do. I was still. And I, you know, I, I I spend about four months, five months of the year writing each Ross book, but then I'm doing the weekly column as well. So there's yeah. never a week goes by. When I'm not, when you're not rosser, when I'm not rosser, you know. But it is a strange thing because my my daily job that just involves sitting at my desk and I spend about ten hours just looking at the world through the eyes of a moron. <laughs> you know, so, like, so does Graham. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: looking at the world through the eyes of an idiot that's me and uh, and then you do you start to feel like an idiot after a while you know and you do 10 hours of that so it's nice then to be able to say i'm gonna do some serious work <laughs> yeah. on the tara brown book next week the um
1: the, the stage play of breaking that. oh my god that was unbelievable.
0: Yeah. The the the, the actor that played Ross. Uh, yeah, he's Rory Nolan oh. is um he's extraordinary, you know. He's he I mean he Rory's an incredible actor. I mean I I've, I've seen Rory do, you know, Oscar Wilde plays and he yeah. does Shakespeare and you know, he's um he's incredibly versatile and very, very skilled. And I'm just flattered that he would do Something that I wrote, you know, that he would do a comedy that I wrote, um, but he made the part his own from the very first show, which is which is ten years ago. Next year, um, we did the last days of the Celtic Tiger. Um, ten years ago, yeah, when there was still a Celtic Tiger. I only, wrote, <laughs> I only wrote the last days of the Celtic. I wrote the title as a as a pro, as a, a provocative thing, you know, I thought people would see that and go, What's he talking about? The last days of the Celtic Tiger. And now people always say, Oh, you predicted it. And <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I just I was totally chancing my arm, you know, I thought, This'll catch people's attention. What do you mean it's over? And uh and then so Rory came in and read for the part of Ross and he he had kind of committed this whole ross monologue to memory uh from one of the books and he just came in I remember meeting him in the in Maureen's bar, Maureen Potter's bar at the back of the the Olympia, and he just came in and just launched into Ross, shoulders back.
1: No uh, way! I think
0: he might have been wearing chinos and dupes and everything <laughs> at the time, and he launched into this thing, just you know, this monologue, and I just knew instantly. I just said, "Yeah, we found our Ross." Beautiful. He it was brilliant. Yeah, he's amazing. Like, yeah, he really brilliant. Show. And you know, I don't want to. I don't want to. I mean, I. I I, I, I have to give them credit, the actors as well, mm. because, you know, I write something and it's it's jokes on a page and there's some semblance of a plot linking the whole thing together, eventually. <laughs> Not always at the beginning. But they make it what it is, you know? You know, actors like Rory Nolan and Philip O'Sullivan, who plays Charles. And yeah, yeah. Lisa Lamb, who plays Sorica. They, and and uh, Lawrence Kinlan, who, who plays Ronan. I mean, they... they they make it what it is. Avian you know? Gary played. Um, Avian came and yeah, she, she played very good in the second well. run of uh, of the last play. Yeah, and she's terrific. She's but brilliant.
1: I, when I was going to the play, I was excited because I wanted to see. You know, would it come across well? Because reading the your articles every week or reading the books, and it was just perfect.
0: That's every, them. I mean, that's yeah. really down to them. I mean, they they and their comic timing is is extraordinary. You know, because people people don't realize it that. Every audience is different for for um, for a play, you know, yeah. and it's not like if you go and see if you go and see a serious play, right? You you, you kind of don't really know it until the end whether people enjoyed it, like yeah. you know when you see the, you know how you know how great the applause is or whether there's a standing ovation. But with comedy, you're you're discovering every ten seconds whether people are enjoying yeah. it by yeah. the laughter or lack of laughter, and every. Every night is different with a play, so it, like a Tuesday night audience is completely different to a Friday night audience. On a Friday night and Saturday night, people have had a few drinks, and they're a bit looser. They're a bit and looser, it, yeah. and it matters. It really affects yeah. the atmosphere. Tuesday nights they tend to be a listening audience. They they are sober and they sit and they listen and rather than laugh uproariously, they'll tend to look at each other and go, Oh, yes, yeah, very funny. Yes, yeah, that was funny. <laughs> they sort of take off what's funny, you know? <laughs> rather than Yeah, yeah, rather than sort of acknowledging it with laughter. And so those guys on the stage have to they they have to know they get the personality of an audience after about five minutes and they know exactly what lines to ramp up and what lines to dial down, and amazingly skillful thing yeah. they do. You know, I'm just in awe of them. I really am.
3: The deadly.
0: it seems like you have
3: a constant workload. That the Ross once a year, you've been working on that one for ten years on and off, as you said. Writing the plays, you write for TV shows every so often as well.
0: Do you get time off, at all, man? I do. What do you do? Yeah, like, you I know? know. I I, I do seem see when you when you work on something. For that long, you know. Yeah, but the work is kind of spread out over a long period, you know. And then, I mean, the Ross books and the Ross columns are the only things I know every single year. I have to, you right. know, I know that this time next year I'm going to be sitting down writing a, a Ross or Carl kelly book. And I know that this Friday I'll be writing a Ross or Carl Kelly column because that's what I do all the time. So they're kind of my staples. And then the other stuff, the TV stuff, it, it I kind of just build it around it you know i mean i don't i i work pretty long days like i mean i, I get up most mornings about half 5 and well wow. i i kind of you know i i like to be working by 6 or 7 o'clock 7 o'clock at the latest and um and and then i work until maybe 6 or 7 in the evening you know so it's it's kind of yeah. hard this time of year because it's dark when yeah, i yeah, when yeah. i sit at the desk and it's dark when i get up from the desk um, but but it's great in the summer, like you know. But but I mean, it's uh, I always try and put in a 40 hour week, no matter what. And the early morning thing, it's interesting because somebody was asking me why recently, why I get up so early because I don't need to because I'm my, I'm my own boss, you know.
2: Yeah,
0: I think it goes back to my dad, you know, my watching my dad get up at half five for work every morning, and um. My dad worked in Warner Lambert, um, which, which then became Pfizer, you know, yeah. and he, did, he was a factory worker, so he did, he did shifts. So it was either se- he'd start at seven in the morning until t- half two, or he'd start at half two until half ten, you know. So he was I, always either not there in the morning or not there in the evening, but I remember him getting up at half five, and I think in my head that's what work looks like.
3: It's interesting you say that because my dad would start fairly early as well, yeah. And I would have worked for him for a few years, so it's like instilled in me. So if I'm yeah. even on a Sunday, like if I'm in bed past half six, seven, I get tetchy, I get uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah, now I'm not getting up to go to work necessarily or going to, to write stuff. I'm getting up to go downstairs Richard Sky Sports News and eat Coco Pops. But like, yeah Do <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, but I get what you mean and that kind of thing of it's yeah. almost this sort of like, no, I'll get up now. I'll get, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Almost like you feel like you have to get yeah, out it's of a the guilt belt. thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I feel guilty about... I can't... I can't earn money unless it hurts. And it's a, t- <laughs> okay. it's a... it's a, It's a guilt thing and I think it's... I think it probably comes from, you know, being being working class, you know, right. and um, it, it's just this thing of I, 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 I can't, I hate I hate money, like, you know, I hate it, you know, and, and I feel guilty about having money, probably because we didn't have money growing up, like, you know, so if I get any money, I feel <laughs> I don't deserve this. It's just It's just in me, like, and it's, really? go, it's not going that's, anywhere. That's it's just that, in me. Yeah. I feel guilty, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a millionaire or anything, but... But any any time I get a check and I look at it and I I know you know early in my life when I was working in factories how long it would have taken me to earn that money and now I'm getting it in one check I I kind of think I feel awful I feel really really bad and I think with my workload there's a certain element of self punishment or something there it's self congratulation or yeah. something well, yeah I kind of feel like. I have to hurt. It has to... I have to go home at night jaded. I have... Like, I, I'm narcoleptic in the evenings. Like, you know, Mary, my wife, just... You know, she's driven to the wall with me watching half of a show and then she just looks at me and I'm, <laughs> me, I'm asleep with my head on my chest, like, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> We we she tapes all these things on uh, on uh, Dave, you know, like um, would I lie to you and all these shows, you know, mock the week, and we ha- she's got them all on the the box, and there's about thirty of them there. I know at the moment that we're halfway through, and I just nod <laughs> off, and then she has, she turns it off, and just rolls her eyes. But that's me, and and I do work to the point where I am just absolutely beat yeah. at ten o'clock at night, absolutely dead. But I think it it does come from that thing of. Feeling that it has to hurt. That, that if if I had an easy day, I really go home feeling guilty. About. That's a
1: nice discipline to have, though. I mean, yeah, I think it's admirable because you could possibly just stay in bed till midday and work yeah. till six. Yeah, I'd I still don't get the I, same yeah. workout, but
0: yeah, and I, I I don't think I could live with myself over that. You know, but it's you're working
1: um, more than what say your father would have worked in a factory or what you would have. Yeah, worked I a do. Lot.
0: I yeah. I mean, dad, dad did a lot of did a lot of overtime i suppose when we were younger like you know when when um when you sort of just took whatever overtime was going because that's what you had to do when you had four kids but we um but yeah i mean i probably do work you know I'm, i i there's a lot of weeks i do a sort of 60 hour week i think um and then <clears throat> when i was coming towards the end of the tarot brown book there was a period of about 8 months where i worked seven days like i worked every single day i work saturdays and sundays as well and you know that stupid thing i felt great i felt great that i was, having, <laughs> I was getting up at half five on a saturday morning and <laughs> and and half five on a sunday morning and sitting at the computer and working like because that's what i feel i have to do if i'm you know to justify any success or money that come my way i kind of feel like say you worked hard for it yeah see it's yeah
3: it's interesting, I don't know, maybe this is me just trying to um, sound like I'm intelligent. I don't know, or trying to overanalyze or something, but like, You are intelligent. You are intelligent. <laughs> Thanks, lads. Um, but, you're kind of saying that, and in, this kind of whole, uh, I need I need to work hard and feel like I've earned it or whatever, and yet, when we're talking to you about kind of the work that you've done, the first thing you almost want to do was like, pass the credit on to, like the lads who, who acted in the play, and then, I've read interviews with you before and you were talking about the, the George Hook book mm. and it was one of the first lines of the interview you're passing the credit on to it's George's story kind of thing mm. and
2: yeah yet
3: you're the one that, that's brought it together like yeah. you know what I mean yeah. it's, it's, it's fascinating that you're thing, the storyteller
0: yeah. yeah I don't know I mean I, I don't know I'm more than I'm more than capable of taking credit. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not modest. Oh, no. I've read some interviews with myself, and I just read, and I think, oh, Jesus, did I say that? You know, sometimes sometimes I'm more than keen to take the credit. No, in the case of George's book, I I mean, it's the truth, like, you know? I mean, you've heard George on the radio. I mean, he's... I didn't have to drag a single story out of him, you know? I never had to... I never really had to say to George... I think you're being a bit easy on yourself there. Mm. Can you, you know, or, or you know, I didn't have to convince him to be tougher on himself or to um stop seeing himself as the hero of his story. George was just ready to tell that story like it was. Yeah. Um and and he talks in complete sentences and he has all of these wonderful anecdotes and so a lot of I'm really proud of the work I did on the George on George's book but a lot of it was an exercise in transcription you know it was it was just sitting with him I think ghostwriting is um it's it go. It, it, the secret to ghostwriting is really the relationship you know between the the subject of the book and the ghostwriter and if you get on which I do very very well with George mm. it's not it's not diff, it's not difficult you know if the if the subject trusts you um, it, it 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 comes quite easily because most of the time it was just me and George sitting in the kitchen of his of his house in Fox Rock eating Club Gold Grain and drinking coffee and and George telling me these wonderful stories of this this incredible life another one like yeah. Tara Brown who had this incredibly colourful life all these twists and turns it took before he got to a point where people actually knew who he was. Almost like he found um, his calling when he eventually yeah, went to broadcasting like yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. And 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 he spent his whole life stuck in a job that wasn't for him. But that as he said himself, it was like I was living somebody else's life. He's he's doing catering and he, he doesn't know anything about catering and yeah. he's, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands in debt. And his creditors are chasing him all over Dublin and some nights he goes home and he can't even go into his house because one of the creditors is sitting outside his driveway waiting for him to come home so george had all these bolt holes all around dublin where he used to go and hide out like hotels and stuff yeah. like that um and i think that's an amazing life to lead i mean he he spent so many years of his life lying to himself and lying to other people you know just to cover up for this mistake he made early on which was to choose the wrong career yeah. that he should have gone into broadcasting when he was straight yeah. yeah it was an incredible yeah. book yeah and
3: yeah. then it all culminates like, then with him i don't literally appear like yes yeah. You know, yeah
0: and, and, and he piece, was like, indeed two or three moments where where he was going to end it it's funny because when i think of george's life um being off the rails i don't actually think of those moments when you know on Dunleary Pier yeah, or yeah. A, he did an incident on the Rock Road where he was he, he determined he was going to drive into this petrol truck that was coming towards him and he pulled away at the last minute but I, I just think of him at the Rugby World Cup was it the first Rugby World Cup where he was the American coach, coach yeah. and he hadn't he hadn't told his wife that he was coaching the American team. And in- I don't think Ingrid particularly cared whether he was coaching the American team or not. But he 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 uh, he was in America for about eight months of the year. And he'd be telling her he was catering on a film set down in Tralee or something, you know. And he'd ring her up. He'd be in Florida and he'd ring her up and say, Ah, oh, it's lashing rain here <laughs> down in Tralee, Ingrid. And he'd say you know, he'd, he'd get up in the middle of the night to make this phone call, just to make it plausible that he was ringing in the morning. Oh, my goodness. And um, Thank God, no caller ID back then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So he hadn't paid bills. This is in the book, actually. He hadn't paid some bill. I think it was the telephone or the gas, or maybe it was the telephone and the gas, and they were cut off. And Ingrid was in the house with her mother and um, her stepfather, and there was, and he was a North of England man. And uh, the, George just said, the atmosphere in the house, the tone in the house is, what a useless... Uh, 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 you married, you know? <laughs> yeah. How could you have been so stupid to marry this guy? And no one knows where George is. He's missing in action. And the stepfather goes into the sitting room and he's watching the rugby and he shouts, there he is, the bugger! <laughs> and George... <laughs> George is sitting in the dugout <laughs> with with a laminate badge around his neck. And this is this is how Ingrid finds out that George is coaching. And he's not in Tralee.
2: Yeah.
0: This is how she finds out he's coaching the American team. I mean, it's uh, What were you it, like when you heard that story? I just My jaw was on the floor, you know? My jaw was just on the floor. I could I couldn't believe it. I mean he said he described his life. He said he saw the film "Catch Catch Me If You Can," and he just said, "That's my life." He could completely relate to that because he said, "My life was such a lie that if I even caught myself telling the truth, I'd tell two lies to cover up for it." <laughs> yeah. he just, he just his life just became a lie.
1: That's mental. I find as well the whole Ghostwriter subject relationship very interesting. I mean, you're, you were saying there it's a transcriptual kind of exercise. But are you trying to are you trying to tell a certain story though as well do you know like your're you're kind of uh, transcriptural exercise to me sounds like whatever George was saying you were just writing yeah but are you trying to get something out as well yeah
0: I mean I think well, there's a couple of things I mean I suppose the other the other thing you have to do is sort of check facts and stuff like that as well because somebody's we're all unreliable narrators of our own stories you know and we yeah. all tend to sort of we, we we exaggerate. Yeah, we exaggerate, and then sometimes we fossilize something in our minds as happening a certain way. And actually, when you check back, it didn't happen that way. Yeah. It happened a different way. And so, so that's part of the job as well. But really, I mean, George probably told me three hundred stories, but they don't all fit in the book. Yeah, you know, some of them might fit in another book. Um, but the book was the story of his life. You know, this the the, the book was the story of him um this, his childhood and his teenage years and you know you know being an all Ireland debate and champion and stuff like that. And yeah. all of these things he he should have seen in himself when he was a teenager. He should have seen, I have what it takes to go into broadcasting. And that was his great love was radio and debating and stuff like that and thinking on his feet. And then how he got sidelined into becoming a caterer i mean he was making sandwiches for for dublin school kids like for ten thousand dublin school kids every day and um, he got the he got the contract from dublin corporation to make to make these sandwiches so the uh, there was a building up before your time lads you know? <laughs> uh it was the irish sweepstakes building in balls bridge it was opposite the rds i think there's apartments there now there's apartments everywhere now <laughs> and um But he had, when he had the contract with Dublin Corporation, he had 500 ladies in there or 200 ladies in there and they were buttering bread and making sandwiches every day for Dublin school kids. And he had the contract for that. And it was an entirely loss making operation because he was involved in a bidding war with Campbell catering and they just kept undercutting each other every year. So for about seven or eight years it wasn't even a profitable enterprise. But they were just trying to screw each other over. And so so that's so George finds himself in that in that situation. So he's he's building up these debts and he's in a, a cash generative business where, you know, he might do the catering for the Leopardstown races or you know, a movie. He, he catered on um, uh, a lot of John Borman's movies. And um, he would he would get maybe 40 grand, but he'd owe 80 grand to various credits. So he'd give a little bit to them and a little bit to them, and then he'd hide from these three people for the next year. Wow. And then if he got money, he'd pay them. and But by then he'd built up even more debts. So his life was... I just said to him, I, I can't understand still why... He never had a, a nervous breakdown. His life yeah. was such a mess. Yeah. And he said, It's weird. He said, I was living a nervous breakdown. He said, I was just I just lived it. And he said his life was just like a plate spinning act. He's just spinning plates and just as that one's about to fall, he manages to put some more momentum in it. And then this one over here is about to fall. So he used to run over to that. And to that, did he uh, turn down the franchise to McDonald's? He the, did, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how much he knew about catering. That's the, yeah. th- that's the thing. I mean, he was offered the franchise to McDonald's in 1980, I the think it was. First fran- franchise, yeah, the first franchise. And he said, Irish people will never eat hamburgers. <laughs> 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 and how right <rice> you thought <laughs> <you> was. <Yes. laughs> the, the, the McDonald's and Carrick
1: Mines, uh they made their money back in the franchise the first weekend that opened,
0: yeah. Yeah, I can I can believe that. You um, know, that's I, I probably
1: gave
3: them half. Um.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the,
1: the, 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 I still sorry. The ghost writing subject thing fascinates me because I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Roy Keane and Eamon Donfey. I'm thinking about Roy Keane and Roddy Doyle. Yeah, and it's just like it's just yeah. so
3: fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say about the ghost writing because the the George sounds like you've had a, a largely positive experience. You done to Steve Collins one day in which unfortunately turned a little bit negative. Yeah. As, as, as yeah. About boy. Is ghostwriting writing something that now you've put a pin? You are saying I'll oh, never, or does it never say never? Or I, I think, like
2: I, I, I was really
0: pleased with the Steve Collins book at the time, but when I look back, it's kind that was kind of hack work, you know. Mm. It was kind of you um, just a kind of gun for hire, you know. It's kind of it's like I wouldn't get as much pleasure out of ghost writing a book. As I would out of um, writing a book myself, yeah, you know, like yeah. the Tara Brown book. I mean, when you ghostwrite a book, you get a small mention in the acknowledgements, and you you're doing it for the money, really. You yeah. know, I I I mean, I I love doing the George Hook book because I I get on really well with George, and I just thought this is a story I want to tell. I knew some of the story, and then when he told me more of it, and I I, I really desperately wanted to do that. But if the right story came along, I'd do it. But it's not—it's not something I go—it's not something I go out and seek now. You know, I think I'd much rather—I'd rather write books like the Tara Brown book, where it's a subject I'm interested in, and I go out and do the research myself. And do you have your eye on anything, or does it now just take a bit of a break? Or oh, there's a couple of things. You know, there's a—I've always wanted to write. I'm fascinated um, by the story of. Um, a guy called Dougie Trendle, um, and when I was a kid, uh, one of my one of my favourite there was this massive ska uh, revival um, in Ballybrack <laughs> in the eighties. You know, we all went around with Harrington jackets and state black state press trousers and white socks and black loafers. Like it was, we were proper skaz. You know, everybody in Ballybrack dressed like that. Me, Dad. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's all I'm saying right now. What? <laughs> all I'm saying right now is your dad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, though, anyway, one of the ska bands I was really into was Bad Manners, and Dougie Trendle was the lead singer of Bad Manners, and um, uh, Fatty Buster Bloodvessel yeah. was was his name, uh, his nickname, and uh, he has an amazing life story. And uh, I wrote him a letter couple of months ago asking him would he be interested in telling a story and I haven't heard anything back but if he if he got in touch with me I'd love to ghostwrite his story wow um, but that's about the only that's about the only one that actually interests me yeah. at the moment you know that's, I don't it's um, amazing yeah yeah it's a, I was talking to Roddy Doyle actually at the, the book awards about, about the Roy Keane book you know and um, and again we were talking about this thing about the relationship and and he, him and Roy hit it off. But it's a very different kind of relationship, you know, like that I would have had with George, where George is a very kind of gregarious character. And, you know, we became really good mates. We, we kind of knew each other before, but we became really, really good mates over the course of it. Whereas Roy, I think Roy's relationship with Roddy was much more arm's length, you know. I think they used to meet in a hotel function room to do the interviews probably not unlike this fine room in fitzpatrick's (laughs) where we're sitting now and they did that they did all of that so like roddy never got into his house or anything like that you know so it's a very very different um a very different kind of relationship would he have needed to get
1: into his house to make the book better or
0: i don't think so because i think uh, i think I think Roy is was smart enough to have you read that that particular book yeah. it's a performance like yeah, you know yeah. Yeah. it really is it's a it's a it's a proper performance provo- there's loads of provocative stuff in it do you mean and that in a
1: good way or? yeah yeah
0: i mean I, I mean it in a good way you know but it, but you know Roy came to it with a lot I always think it's really interesting when Roy comes every April and does his charity thing the guide for the dogs. guy dogs right and he does a press conference and he always says six or seven things that just go you make you go i can't believe he said that (laughs) like you know we'd always have a go at everton or you know or a player who he thinks is you know playing below with blow power you know like jamie redknapp and his b caps and that kind of thing um i have the same
1: feeling when i listen to roy Keane quotes yeah with morrissey
0: I was going to say exactly, exactly what you just said because I'm reading Morrissey's autobiography at the moment right. and I got that sense from Morrissey's book that it's a performance, that he's saying things to shock or to get a reaction. I mean, not to the same degree, you yeah. know, but he's, obviously they're very, very different characters. But I love
1: hearing both of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they don't, they don't care. Yeah. They don't care who they offend, you know. They're, they're, truth, they're truth-tellers. You know, it's uh, the more. Did, did you read Morris's No, I book? haven't. It's, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's supposed to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. There's there's lines in it that just make your jaw drop. Like really? You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's really. A, he says he, he's talking about his the case when the Smiths sued him. Um, they I think there were. it was something about the way the royalties were distributed between the band. Him and John and Johnny Marr were on twenty five percent or no, they were on uh forty percent each and the other two were on ten percent each. And years later the other two sued and said they should have been getting twenty five percent. So it's a big court case. And then but anyway, it takes up about one fifth of the whole book, just this really? court case. Yeah. But he kind of sees himself as as uh, as Oscar Wilde, you know. He loves Oscar Wilde, yeah, see? he does, yeah, yeah. But he casts himself in that Oscar Wilde mo- uh, role in the book, there. yeah, yeah, and that that you know he's he's a man who's being done down by the establishment, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, so he sees himself as this sort of you know victim, like Oscar Wilde was a victim, uh, but he has this funny line. I was reading it on the train last week, and this line made me laugh out loud. He just says. I do not possess the. I do not possess the human cruelty to describe the physical appearance of the opposition barrister. Right, but then, two, unbelievable. But then, two paragraphs later, he starts describing how ugly he is. <laughs> <laughs> and when I read it, I was thinking, I wonder, Willie. And then he just got and launches into this description of. And then just some of his lines, I mean, yeah. it really, it's a, it, it's a work of art. They published, it was really controversial because they published it as a Penguin classic, you yeah. know, with, under that, um, under that brand. And, and it, and it, you know, it, it, it doesn't have, you know, the sort of the same 200 years of sales or 150 yeah. years of sales to deserve to be a Penguin classic but i i think it's a modern classic it's an absolute masterpiece and of the, a book and
1: the uh, the interview uh, you posted on twitter your with marsey oh my god yeah.
0: it's brilliant on the a bbc young then. And, yeah
1: yeah, yeah. Th- from the bbc interview yeah and your man that came on about
0: they put him on with somebody they put him on with somebody who was telling him his star signs or something you know and Morrissey no more believes in this nonsense and your man is saying uh, you, you know you need to learn to compromise more because you, you are a Gemini you are a Gemini remember and Morrissey in fairness didn't say, you'd say oh yeah that's very interesting that's what he didn't say you know what a load of guff classic <laughs>
1: Oh god, yeah, no. I've have you seen Morrissey Live? Uh,
0: no, I haven't. No, yeah, I'd love to.
1: Seen him two years ago. On the oh, Point. really? Yeah. Was he good? Brilliant. Yeah. There was a uh, kind of like we said, he just does not give a shite. No. There was a section of the show where it was like the meat is murder. Yeah. And I had the the big screen came up and it was just all. In a slaughterhouse, and yeah. there was people kind of walking out and all. It was it was yeah. very very graphic, but yeah. sure. I mean, I, I respect that. I, I respect I, tell you, I'm I respect someone
0: that has those beliefs. Yeah, like. and he's turning me to vegetarianism. You know, <laughs> not quite. You know, I had a pork chop sandwich, <laughs> <laughs> but if you, you watch, know what? Like, I, I as I get older, I get I find it more and more difficult to justify. Eating have, meat. Have you, know? you watched Cowspiracy? No, I'd see I, something like that. I think it'd kill me. Yeah. I yeah. would, yeah. I think well, it'd that, kill if me. you're but halfway
3: I'd, there reading Marcy, yeah, you're gone if, reading if, yeah. You're it made me genuinely. And like, I love me meat, like, yeah, you know what I mean? and it made me genuinely sort of sit
0: back and go, Yeah,
3: steak's delicious now, but like, really but the idea is. that our
0: now animal is raised for you to eat it, yeah, you know, like and, and, and he's right, like, if you love animals. Which I do. This has to cross your mind, you know. The, yeah. why, why do you want to eat them? Yeah. I, so anyway, I'm about halfway, I think, towards becoming a vegetarian. <laughs> I was sitting recently with those lads, the Happy Pear lads. You know them? They were on the...
1: They were on the Late Late hours yeah. in the audience. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: And they're just, like, disgustingly healthy, <laughs> you know. Like, just despicably, despicably thin and good-looking and lean and... Full of beans. Full yeah. of beans and nice guys, just sickeningly so, right? And um we were chatting away. We, we, we're with the same publisher, like we're both with Penguins. So we were at the Book Awards together sitting at the same table. And uh, I was chatting to, I think it was David, and his mum and dad were there as well. And they're vegetarians. And they all just look like, you know, just a picture of health are they vegetarians though yeah they are no they're (laughs) they're vegetarian full vegetarian (laughs) and they this it was the two lads convinced the parents to go vegetarian and they said they haven't looked back since and they look really healthy you know yeah and um so anyway i'm thinking about it a lot you know but then i ordered a 16 pound of turkey last week for christmas like i loved her and i can't imagine my brother's a vegetarian and his wife, and they're coming to us for Christmas, and I know I'm gonna watch them fill in their plates with sprouts and carrots, and I'm gonna think that's the downfall of vegetarianism yeah. for me. That <laughs> I'd miss that. Yeah. I miss the turkey See, that, and that.
3: That's what that's what I was gonna say. Like in my head, I was out, I was on time with this one lad. Some work recently, and he was kind of saying like his wife is a vegetarian, and he was saying like so, I you know he was saying accidentally, I know exactly what he means, the wife cooks and he just eats whatever's put in front yeah, of him. But he's yeah. like, sometimes she will make me, but he's like, I'd eat a couple of vegetarian meals a week just because, yeah. out of convenience, she's cooking for both of us. And he's right. like, that's, you just do that just, you know, two, three meals a week just yeah. have a vegetarian meal. Yeah. He's like, don't lose your Christmas dinner because he was straight up, he's like, I couldn't go down to yeah. ham on Christmas.
0: Like, no,
3: he couldn't. Yeah. If I, I mean, I think I could deal with that way. I think I could be kind of moderate and sort of say like, yeah maybe Morrissey wouldn't
0: like that you know no yeah. he's all or nothing what would Morrissey <laughs> do what would Morrissey do yeah. he's all or no wouldn't yeah, say yeah. that I wouldn't share a Christmas dinner with him do you know I mean? he wouldn't so, say like, that yes, he's got this great line in the book where he's got this manager for about 13 years and they're in a, a restaurant in Los Angeles and the manager ordered frog's legs and he said don't order frog le- don't eat frog. Le- frog's legs in front of me and he said look I'm having frog's legs that's it you know I want them I'm having them <laughs> And so Morris he said, so I got up from the table and uh, I never saw him again. <laughs> he won't sit at the table if somebody or his meat. He, See, won't, he won't sit at the table with them. He, walk out. Uh,
3: like I, I respect somebody's like, uh, opinions and somebody's beliefs and all that. And it, but that's when he's trying, he's trying to force, I think, on, on somebody else. And I think I, I don't like that. I, no, I, he's trying to force it though, is he? Well, he's saying you can't eat meat at my yeah, table, Yeah, but he's at a meeting with some he's saying, Yeah,
0: he's, he's saying he just doesn't want to be there. He just doesn't want to see it, you know. Um, Does he judge people? Yeah. Okay. Like, <laughs> so it's great you know, in the book. Like, like he, call, you know, he calls people, you know, if he hates somebody, he says, that carnivore, like carnivore, you know. Like, <laughs> and So everybody is called out, but you can tell when, when he hates somebody, the first touchstone is their love of meat. like that's that justifies how he feels about that person you know and he's a fascinating character oh, he's you know?
1: unreal I meant to see him in vicker Street there as well a couple of years ago and um for the stand up gig the wheelchair section was kind of just over to the left of the the front of the stage and he kind of towards the it was towards the end of the encore and he came over he ripped up the set list mm. And he comes over to me and he flamboyantly gives it to me. He gives, yeah. Oh, he's really? singing a song. He has the mic up. He has the mic up like that. Yeah. And he goes like that to me and gives it to me. And I was like, what? He had signed it as well. Really? Morrissey. And it's a set list. and it has Do a you thing. have it? Yeah, I have it at home. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was like. Wow. And there was, as you know, his fans are obsessed with him. Yeah, yeah. And there was all these guys with the quiffs and there were image of him and they were kind of like, give us that will you and I was like no yeah. you will not go on give us a, how much will you take for it and I was like nothing
0: it's mine I remember the first time the Smiths came out it was around so it would have been 83, 84 and I was in first year at Lawrence's you know and I remember sitting in B6 I remember as clear as anything and we're told do you see a man on top of the Pops last night with the flowers in his back pocket and it was Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now oh, I song. love it well, he's dancing there was nothing like that on Top of the Pops it was Top of the Pops was Duran Duran and Spanda Ballet and these kind of you know very masculine groups yeah. who had loads of dolly birds around them you know with their chests out and all that kind of thing and there's this man who's a kind of sexless man, really. He you know? is sexless, and isn't he, he looked really unhealthy. <laughs> and he had glasses, like he actually had glasses, like I had at the time, which were those kind of national health ones, you know. Uh, mine had a little bit of plaster holding the earpiece. On. He didn't have that, like you know. But but it's the first time you say, God, a pop star doesn't have to be cool, like you know, and. Uh, and then he had he's kind of dancing like with two hands above the, above his shoulders and uh, and then a, a bunch of flowers in his back pocket. It was just I think I've seen revolutionary. the Revolutionary, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've seen the clip. Yeah, you'll find it on YouTube. Like yeah. you know, it's um, but we'd never seen anything like that before. It was great. He loves um, Damian Dempsey. Yeah, yeah. He, Damian, I'm not surprised. Like he's his kind of musician.
1: Yeah, but Damien told a story before where on some interview. Um, I think it was with Aidan Cooney on Q one hundred and two, and he said that he was just um, in his apartment one day, and Morrissey knocked on the door, uninvited. Didn't yeah. know Morrissey was even in the country, and they just went on the bender for the weekend. Really? Yeah. And Jesus he took Damien on his uh, tour of the UK there. Yeah. Two months ago, and he and Damien was supporting Morrissey. Oh my God. Uh, supporting him in the Manchester Evening News arena, and that's like eighteen thousand people. Oh my
0: God, I've been in that. Yeah. I saw Bo- I saw Nigel Benn and Steve Collins in that arena. Yeah, it's an wow. amazing arena.
1: Where Katie fought this weekend?
0: Yeah, did yeah. you take
1: an interest in that? Into Katie? In Katie? Yeah, yeah. In her yeah. pro just, career?
0: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's great. I, I. I wish she'd gone four years ago. That's the only thing, you know. Yeah. But look, she wanted to win another Olympic medal, and and that didn't work out. But I, I think um, I think she's got a great. Style for for the pro game, you know. Mm. I think she's I think she's extraordinary. I think she'll do really well.
1: She, I think she's uh, she stepped up her aggression, something yeah. something
0: fierce, hasn't she? Yeah. yeah. But the great thing about Casey is, I think she has she can do the longer rounds as well. You know, yeah. she can she she has the, sta- she has the stamina and the stamina for those sort of intense fights. Um, but. I broke my heart to see her in the summer you know that just it was heartbreaking because it wasn't her and I know people say oh they thought she won that fight but that wasn't the point like you know she she is so much more class than that uh, that girl she fought you know she was so much better than her and you know that shouldn't have even been close that fight you know that should have been she should have beaten her out of the ring there's some that were saying kind of the signs were there that she hadn't really
3: been performing building up to the Olympics and that kind of thing and I don't know. I, I don't know the circumstances, so I can't comment on what's going on outside the ring. But certainly, I think you're right. I think inside the ring, you could kind of tell. Yeah. She just she was wasn't
0: herself. She yeah, wasn't and it there, wasn't. Like, it, the thing about it was, it wasn't the natural deterioration that happens to boxers. You no. see it, you know, you follow a boxer for years, and then you think he's lost a little bit of speed, or yeah. she's lost her footwork, or she's a little bit chinnier than she was before. Like, I didn't feel that with Casey Taylor. I thought, you know, the fall off in her performance, in her. Performances started when her father was no longer in her corner, and like you, you know, it's you, we can't comment on the circumstances, but it is it is a sort of glaring, uh, glaringly obvious thing that that you know this this man and and, and his daughter who had this extraordinary father daughter relationship, sporting relationship, and you know he piloted her career, yeah, uh, and then he's no longer a factor, and that's you know that's a that's a terrible terribly tragic thing, I think, that he that he was no longer in a corner. Mm. And um and I think that's the I think that was the big thing, you know.
1: Yeah. Um last time we had John Paul, right, there was a lot of people we got into a conversation about um doping and we could have been there for two days talking about it. It was amazing. Yeah. And I noticed our the feedback from that was like oh I wish Paul was still doing sports journalism. And then I've noticed on your new kind of personal Twitter, not russer's Twitter. Yeah, there's always people kind of every now and again saying, "Would you ever go back? Would you ever yeah. go back? Do you miss it th- that much to go back?" Or
0: um, I miss what it used to be. I mean, I do miss. I, I miss um, the way jer- sports jer- sports writing was in the in the nineties when I was doing it. Um, but it's different now. It's changed. You know, you don't as a as a writer, you don't have the access that that I would have had when I started writing. Like when I, when I was a sports writer, you could phone up Andy Townsend when he was the captain of the Ireland team and you could say, uh, kind of do an interview and he'd say, when do you want to come? And you'd say, well, I'll come out to England on Wednesday. And he'd pick you up at the airport and bring you to his house and his wife would cook you dinner and you'd spend five hours talking to him and then he'd drop you back to the airport that night. And you kind of felt like you were Jesus. making a connection. With people you were interviewing. And then it changed, you know, it just, footballers became less interested. Um, they became less interesting as well, actually. Um, and they had a lot less to say for themselves and they started talking in these horrible cliches. And it's impossible to get them to break out of I used to be able to throw in a couple of questions that could kind of stop them talking in cliches and get to say something that was real. But I don't know Did you see Theo Walcott talking about the oh birth of God. his, his yeah. child last week, you know. and
1: Theo Walcott in general, I didn't see that one. He was asked
0: about his, they said, how's your wife doing? And he said, uh, she did fantastically well. Um, obviously, uh, we're a nice little unit now and uh, it's looking good uh, going forward in the future. And I said, he felt like shaking him, said, this is the birth of your child, yeah. you know. Um and, if, and it had become a bit. It had become like that, you know. You, you you just found yourself, you know, increasingly talking to these young guys who didn't really have anything to say anyway. You know, they they just they were. They didn't think about the world like sports people did in the eighties. Footballers, um, I'm talking about specifically, and then with other sports like J A, rugby. It was just getting impossible to actually sit down and have a conversation with a player, you know, that didn't you know, where there wasn't a PR person telling you to wrap it up after five minutes or seven minutes or is that know, social media. Yeah, as well? well, I think it's I think it's got to do with control. I think it's got to do with sponsors. Like for instance, if if a rugby player is has a sponsorship deal with a car manufacturer or um a soft drink manufacturer, or, or you know, a, a, a raise, somebody who makes razors, you might get a phone call and say, "Oh, do you want to meet X person?" And the deal you have to sign then is that you've got to mention whoever it is, Audi or Gillette or Lucas yeah. Sport, you know, once in the intro and then three more times throughout the piece. That's not journalism to me. You know, yeah. that's just that's just it's advertising. Yeah. yeah. Um. So the answer is no. I don't. I certainly don't miss that.
1: Because um, you think it's evolved into something
0: yeah. that it wasn't. Yeah, and I, the funny thing is, with all the coverage of sport now, I don't. I actually feel further away from sport than than I did back then. You know, we, you know, back then when, when I was working for a Sunday newspaper, you actually still had a chance of breaking a story on a Sunday. But now with social media, the news changes so quickly that you know
2: newspapers no are in dead
0: but yeah. you know even new th- the morning newspaper what what have you ever found out that's new in a morning newspaper News. everything comes you know yeah. you, you find it out the night before you know yeah. radio still has a shot at it but mostly it's online um, so so it was all it was all changing and I kind of felt it changing in 2005 there was the drugs thing that, put, that started to put me off because I just found out I just found I was writing about drugs all the time you know yeah. and you, Ireland will win something Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of Keene O'Connor winning the gold medal on Waterford Crystal in Athens in 2004, and I covered it. And then six weeks later, the positive drug test on the horse comes in, and then you've got to revisit the story.
1: So you're jubilant kind of
0: Yeah. I mean, I I tried never to be jubilant because you're always trying to be objective about things. But yeah, I mean, you know, you, you certainly, if, if, If Rodrigo Pessoa, who was the Brazilian who finished second in that in that event, if he'd won, I I would have felt a lot differently than if Keen O'Connor had won. So you do have a sense that this is a this is a fantastic thing for Ireland. And yeah, you do. It is nice to write about Irish winners, Um, but then but then you know the positive test comes in, and you think, right, what was I, you know, how how do I cover this now? Yeah, and and most of my year was actually becoming. Um, either about writing drug stories or covering stories where I was really dubious about an athlete. Uh, and it happened a few times at the Athens Games. And then I had to cover, maybe they won an event and I had to cover it. And I had to cover it like I believed in them when I didn't believe in them. Um, and that was hard. And I said to somebody recently, I, I don't think I could cover an Olympics, for instance, without libelling 30 or 40 people. Like, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, this was my whole life I felt was leading up to covering Olympics like when I was a kid it was I I would just I would like the LA Olympics in 84 and the Seoul Olympics in 88 I sort of bought the the Ladybird book in which you fill in who won each medal and all that kind of thing I still have those books you know and I I was looking at them recently thinking just thinking about how innocent I was when you know and actually I filled in Ben Johnson as the 100 metre it's the winner. dirtiest race in history, yeah, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And then I must have been cynical. That must have been the start of the cynicism because I never crossed it out and put Carl Lewis <laughs> <laughs> after Ben Johnson was ca- was caught. Um, so I was, I, you know, I, I, it, and then by the time I got to the Olympics, I covered the Sydney Olympics and I was very cynical by the time I finally got there. Like, it, well, I wasn't, I didn't feel, you know, full of joy at being at the Olympics. I was very, very cynical. And then Athens, I just... I just had kind of you that know i given up on sport. I think at that stage I was I, gonna,
3: I was going to ask that: Does the cynicism travel to all
0: sports, or was it just athletics? Or is, are you kind of looking at now saying I'm looking at football now, and uh, yeah, I, I have yeah, no question. There's no question in my mind that doping is playing uh, an increasing part yeah. in in the Premier League. Really? Yeah. yeah no, oh, I don't hundred yeah, percent no, no, agree with no that. Question. And, and rugby as well. I, I find it hilarious
3: that people. Yeah. Are looking at these huge guys that yeah. have this athletic ability that they should not have, yeah. and all of a sudden it's yeah, that's that's just hard work in the gym. That's all that is to
0: just you know. Yeah. Not, but what, and on. if you look at what it are really, the signs for
1: football for you, Paul?
0: Um, energy levels. Um, I also listen to when you when you cover when you cover football. Um. Oh, sorry, when you cover sport and you you talk to people who know about doping, you you find yourself talking in this euphemistic language, right? So you start to say, you say things like, uh, like we'd be talk, say if we were talking about a track and field athlete who we all suspected was doping. We'd say, God, yeah, her times are uh, really up on last year. You know, she's kind of having a real career renaissance, uh, that kind of thing. And I've noticed a lot of pundits start to talk about football, footballers and football teams in those terms like they know. And I can kind of see, I can hear it. When I hear, uh, you know, Arsene Wenger talk about uh, teams and their energy, their energy in the last 10 minutes is extraordinary. I know Arsene Wenger thinks those players are on drugs. Wow. Um, and, you know, and and look, the I mean, the, the, the one I'm thinking of, the team I'm... I'm suspicious of lots of teams I'm very suspicious of Chelsea um, I would have real doubts about Leicester you know I, I, I think um, I think what Leicester did last year requires some uh, explanation and the fairy tale just doesn't do it for me because I don't I don't believe in fairy tales um, I think their fall off this season requires some explanation as well <laughs> um, and um
1: so it's not just form; it's not just bad form.
0: Yeah, I mean, what, what you always look—what I always looked for with athletes was um, huge dips in form. Um, you know, typically an athlete who was, cro- say, say with a track and field athlete, an athlete who was crocked in the spring and couldn't run in the indoor, world indoor championships, or you know, um, missed the cross country season. And then suddenly came back uh, looking like the greatest athlete you'd ever seen by the time the Worlds or the Europeans or the Olympics rolled around in the summer. I mean, that's what you look for. And then mm. and then maybe you had a complete crash in form afterwards. Because, I mean, doping is all about getting your cycle right. And it's all about peaking at, at the, the optimum moment. Mm. But you can't peak four or five times in a year. You know, like even the... Even the cyclists who are taking drugs, you know, they're taking it. They'll take it for, with the Tour de France in mind, or with maybe another race in mind. So you always kind of look for those huge fall-offs that they sort of fall off a cliff in terms of their form. And you know, I'm not say, I mean, there, there were there were whispers, certainly whispers about Chelsea about Leicester. I I just notice lots of people in the game using euphemistic language about about Leicester you know, talking about their energy levels and, you know, this player, can you believe uh, where he was 12 months ago and where he is now? That kind of stuff. It's, it's To me, that's, that's, the, the, that's the language of doping that I learned, you know, when I was in the media.
1: When you were covering athletics and yeah. the Olympics and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, it's
0: and, I, tr- and it's true what you say about rugby. I mean, rugby yeah. is... Um, and Paul Kimmage is the only one addressing this. He's the only yeah. one who's actually saying, guys, I remember... What a rugby player used to look like twenty years ago. I remember what a what, what you know what a centre looked like. I remember yeah. what a back looked like, and I mean the thing for me. I, I I saw I saw a couple of kids in Donnybrook, um, maybe three or four months ago, and they're rugby players and they're teenagers, young guys, and they're just built like it's crazy, Mister Universe. Yeah, it is you know? crazy, and they're maybe fifteen or sixteen years of age, and it just. I I just find, I, I I just think if I just it just didn't strike me as that's that's a gym body. It just yeah. I, the, what what I thought when I looked at them was that's an enhanced body. I I um, it's a chemically enhanced body. I, you know, when I was covering sport I met it. I met um, a guy who knew an awful lot about doping. You know, and he told me how to look at a body and tell when, whether somebody was doping. So. I got so good at it that I could just—I knew what muscles to look for. I can't do it now, but I could certainly do it then. I can kind of do it now, but I was really good at it at the time that if an athlete took off his top at the end of a race, I could look at him and I could tell he was doping by what muscles were developed bigger than they should have been.
3: Do you have an opinion on the Lionel Messi situation? Or is it something that you even have looked at? or
0: In 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 with regard to how he was took, took performance enhancing drugs yes. at the beginning to bring him on yeah. well i mean it's performance enhancing isn't it i mean i know he had he had growth issues i think didn't he yeah he basically was taking hgh yeah yeah i mean that i mean it's still it's still petri dish stuff isn't it mm. you know it's it's growing parts of an athlete's body i mean you know there there are swimmers who when they're younger take certain hormones to make their feet longer so really? they're like flippers, what? yeah. I mean, and make their hands bigger. Um, and the best swimmers in the world have, uh, you know, yeah, I remember freakishly the big. Had like yeah,
3: just a size seventeen feet, or something mad yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, and the, and so they are essentially like flippers. But you can use growth hormone to grow your feet. You know, you can use growth hormone to grow any part of your body, and and that's performance enhancing. So if you do it when you're younger, if you do it when you're fourteen, before you're in competition. And then you start competing on a world level. I mean, mm. it's still, you've still doped, you know, you're yeah. still doped to enhance a certain part of your body that will give you an advantage over other people. But I, I think it's creeping more and more into sport. I, I can't believe it's taken so long um, to become uh, an issue in, in English football. Um, it's, It's been in Italian football for 30 or 40 years. You yeah. know, it's been in Italian football for a long time. I'm very dubious about um, the top Spanish teams. Um, some English teams over the years I've been dubious about, but there's so much money in the game. I, I can't believe it's it's taken this long for people to be talking about it. Do you, you think know? it's
3: the kind of people putting their head in the sand and hoping it goes away? Or? yeah,
0: and this comes down to the media as well. That the, 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 the you know it's like it's like I always say about cycling that since we all found out. Once and for all, I think with Lance Armstrong that cycling is irredeemably corrupt and can never ever go back to being a clean sport ever again. The media's interest in it has has heightened. Yeah, yeah. and if I was a sports editor, I, honestly, I wouldn't even cover it. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't cover it. I may, I might put a paragraph in a. Sporting Brief column or something. I certainly wouldn't give it, I wouldn't make it a page lead across yeah, eight whatever. columns or something like that. I, I don't think it deserves it. Then
1: you have it. Sky as well sponsoring the team.
0: Yeah, and that's the problem, you know, because because you've got you've got cycling journalists who are, um, you know, it's like when a, it's like when a, a, a journalist who covers war uh, goes off with the army and he essentially he gets a rank in the army when he 's covering when he 's covering a war um, and It must be very, very difficult to criticize those the people around you yeah. and i think what what 's essentially happened with journalism is because there 's no access anymore there 's no real access that 's kind of genuine access it 's all controlled by the teams and it 's controlled by p r people when you do get in. And you, you're 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 kinda of living with a team, you must be so grateful for the access for what you're getting that you're kinda of a bit blinded by it. I think that happens to a lot of journalists who um who get sort of sucked in, you know, who are allowed into the camp and you know that that they it's it's almost like they forget that they're there to criticize and to, to um to watch what's happening and to tell, tell the truth about what's happening around them. Um,
1: Why didn't they pick Paul Kimmich for that?
0: Well, that's it because Paul, I mean, you know, Declan Lynch had a piece in the Sunday independent a while back. He said, Paul Kimmich is the, is the Lieutenant Columbo of sports journalism. <laughs> and he is, he's a nuisance, you know, and that's, and, but, but that's what he's paid to do. That, that's his job, you know, and, and with Paul, the, the doping thing has become a vocation. And, <laughs> And, and and Paul couldn't live with himself if he thought somebody was getting away with that under his nose. And yeah. that's why Paul Kimmich never got the access. That's why he wasn't allowed in. But it's a problem with all sports. I think And I think it's a great failing of sports journalism. It's it's why nobody is writing about doping. Because if you're right about doping, if you tell the truth about doping in football, well, what happens to football? How mm-hmm. can you persuade people to love football? How can you persuade people to pick up the newspaper and read what you're saying about football um but
1: you're the loony as well
0: yeah and you you become a crank you yeah. know and i was i was definitely becoming a crank at the end you know i was um i mean i was i, I was the your
1: morals were kind of getting at the, the better of you were you were they? yeah
0: yeah they were but also you know like i said I'd, I'd i'd kind of fallen out of love with 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 what i was writing about i didn't believe any of the people I was writing about. I didn't believe many of the people I was writing about. And I was just becoming a crank, just a habitual crank. And I was being cranky about stuff that didn't really require me to be cranky. Like, So I remember writing a piece about um, Mark Kennedy. And Mark Kennedy had... There was some story, he was, he was kind of... A, I think he might have been arrested for being drunk and disorderly or something. And one of the tabloids had done a, a job on him and said he He was sort of pressing the bell of David Beckham's apartment and saying stuff about you know uh, stuff for Victoria Beckham like or something like that you know anyway, <laughs> oh, I wrote oh, this oh, really high minded piece about about Mark Kennedy and how he'd thrown away his career and how he you know he was potentially one of the great Irish players and how you know he'd thrown it all away anyway, I got a letter the next week from one of his friends and it just said you sanctimonious prick and and he was right you know like he was he was right i was i was i was becoming very very sanctimonious you know and i wrote that piece that was the week of september 11 and i should have had some perspective <laughs> on what was important and what wasn't important that week of all weeks you know and and yeah i wrote that piece and i i was you know it's one of the pieces I'm least proud of, like, you know, well, because it didn't it didn't matter. Like, it really, just yeah. just the guy who went out and got drunk, I was doing the same myself at the time and doing far worse than, than Mark Kennedy did that yeah. night uh, occasionally. And, yeah, it was the sanctum money thing. But I was, I was definitely, uh, the last couple of years I was becoming a crank. I couldn't, I, I mean, I, I couldn't watch anything uh, without, uh, you know, Thinking, what's he on, or what's she on, or what are they on?
1: Do you enjoy sport now? Um, did you enjoy the Euros with Ireland?
0: Y- yeah, I did. Actually, I I, re, I enjoyed Ireland, and I I enjoyed Northern Ireland. Um, I thought the tournament was massively overblown. I thought it was just too bloated. I thought twenty four teams was ridiculous. You know, I think you know to have a two year qualifying campaign just to eliminate the Liechtensteins and the. San Marino's, you know, the yeah. San Marino's, you know, and your teams in it, Albania, and, and uh, you know, the greatest will in the world. They don't, they don't really belong at a major finals. Oh, well, Iceland,
3: only, I was going to say, the don't think counter that. Though, is you look at Iceland, you look at Wales.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did, they did great, and 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 I, you know, the funny thing is, I think Iceland would probably qualify for a sixteen team European Championships yeah, or a, or a, you know a twelve team Euros. They, they were that good. You know, they reminded me of Denmark and. In, uh, 92. in 92, 92, you know, yeah. um, so I think they, I think they would have been good enough, but I just kind of felt there was, there was the qualifying period to, just to, just to knock out those minnows. And then it was a long group phase just to knock out six teams. I think it was yeah. all together. And it kind of felt like it didn't, it didn't get the business end of it. Didn't really start until the third week, I think. Yeah. And then we got a bad winner. Like I think Portugal are probably the worst team to win it. to win it. Probably since Greece, Greece, yeah, but they you're Greece still, so well organized I mean Greece Greece weren't a bad team, they just didn't have any stars, you know, mm. but they weren't attractive to watch, no, they, they no, no flair players watch, and, yeah. and they were a team I suspected, like I remember that like the the they won it in two thousand and four, and that was that was the year of the Olympics. Yeah. And the funny thing is this this it's the whole thing with Team GB as well like you know that that when a country hosts the Olympics they suddenly become really really good at every sport in it which I find really really suspicious you know <laughs> like when Australia had the Olympics they were just brilliant at everything when Britain had the Olympics they became you know the yeah. GDR essentially you know <laughs> um when, Yeah yeah and there's, there's you know they're still reaping the benefits of that uh, and then when 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 greece hosted the olympics they they had brilliant athletes across a whole host of disciplines you know including the fastest male athlete 100 meter runner in the world and female who were on drugs um and then the then the the euros happened that that same summer and i i remember thinking i was very suspicious of greece especially the last 10 minutes i think yeah. they, so many of their winners came in the last 10 minutes of matches when they were just physically stronger and the concentration they scored a lot of goals from corners as I remember. The concentration at set pieces was just it's exceptional. Actually, it's, it's a parallel I never
3: even thought of to be honest. I then never thought of you it you either.
0: It's so simple though when you look at it like that.
3: Paul, um, we're, we're out of time with you because uh, I'm conscious you have an early morning. This is a three-parter isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> Sorry, I <that's, laughs> you know, have two more questions. I was going to say that. I always uh, do this, Paul, where
1: Danny says loads of time and I just have two brief questions. Okay.
3: His brief questions go on for an hour now so i get on. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do.
1: Um, your writing, um has it ever tempted you to write stories about Ballybrack or bring characters from your Lawrence's days or from Ballyrack in general into yeah. into into writing?
0: I wanna write a memoir of my childhood. Um and we've joked about it on Twitter. Like the 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 name "Once You Go Brack," I think would be a great would be a great title for it. Uh, Brilliant. But I have a I have a book, and I'd be scribbling. I've scribbled lots of stories or bits of stories, fragments of stories, into it. Um, funny things that happened when we were kids. Uh, funny things we used to do. And uh, you know, like we we used to get a chase from a bull. Did I tell you this the last time? There was, a, there was a field in Ballybrack that had a bull in it. And uh, me and Jason Dunn, who lived opposite me in Cromlick Fields, and Chrissy Byrne, I think, who was just across the way as well. Anyway, we used to go to this field and get a chase off the bull. And we just, I mean, it's insane when I remember it now, like the risks we took as kids. But we'd jump over this wall and we'd just stand there and we'd be waving our arms like we were landing in an aircraft. And, ah! Shouting at the bull. And the bull would charge us. And you had to wait until as late as possible before you ran, like you know, you were playing chicken with your life, with a bull, with a bull, a charging bull, a rampaging bull, and uh, and it would run at us, and we and then we would dive over the wall, and then we would laugh our heads off. But it's funny, I it was I met Jason in in Dunleary once, and uh, he said he was looking at Sky News, and they were they were showing the the running of the the bulls in Pamplona, you know, <laughs> they were talking about how dangerous what dangerous it was, and Jason said. We we were doing that when we were eleven. <laughs> Didn't totally have the right. span. We were we were doing it in Ballybrack, like you know, and uh, so stories like that. And I, I always think so. I have this book, and I'm scribbling stories all the time in it. And uh, Mary calls it my book of memories, and it's all childhood <laughs> stuff. And I think I will one day. I'd love to write a memoir, you know, because it was uh, it was a great time, and Ballybrack was just growing at the time. It was very very new and everyone was in the same boat. We were all young. Uh, we, we Nobody knew anyone else. Like, Cromlick Fields was still a building site when we moved on to it, so it was a great sense of adventure, you know, when you're when you, the door was open in the morning, your mum and dad threw you out and said, come back at 10 <laughs> o'clock tonight. <laughs> you just had the whole day ahead of you, like, you know, and it was just about finding mischief and, and fun stuff like the ball and things like that. So I I, I, I will definitely, definitely write about it.
1: I always everything. think of... Uh, i'd love to see remember grange hill yeah i'd love to see it out with lawrence's and the characters and the teachers of lawrence's yeah as grange
0: hill or something yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. they be, were they were much more colorful than the teachers of yeah. grange hill <laughs> yeah <you know? laughs> peak
1: time <laughs> um story about your jacket your Delboy boy jacket that was my second
0: question oh my jacket yeah <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah all right for people listening I, I i came in tonight in um it's a sheepskin it's a faux it's a sheepskin cracker. coat right and it's um, it, it, it looks expensive. I think it costs about 80 euro or something. I got it in America. Um, it, I it coat, right? <laughs> and I call it my wanker coat, right? And I call it my wanker coat because I put it on one Christmas and I went into into Brady's and in Shank Hill. For, I was meeting a couple of friends of mine and a guy walked by me and just went,
2: wanker. <laughs> and
0: I, I did think to myself, if I saw somebody wearing this Del Boy jacket, I'd probably think, I don't think I'd say it, like this guy did, wanker. But anyway... <laughs> the story with the the story behind the coat is we, I bought it in Macy's in New York. That's where I got it. $80. And I put it on and I, I just loved it, you know? And, uh, so about half an hour later, me and Mary are walking up Columbus Avenue. Right. And I'm suddenly aware I'm being followed by this black guy. Right. And he's shouting, Hey, old school, old school. And he's talking to me. He's calling me old school. Right. Mm-hmm. As I turn around and, he kind of looked like he might be a kind of homeless, crack addict, right? He was really, really sinister looking. And um, he's shouting, old school, give me that coat. Give me that coat. And, and then it was amazing. He's paying me compliments and threatening me at the same time, right? So he's saying, you all the style. You all the style. I love your style. I cut you. Give me the coat. Give me that coat. So he follows us for about four blocks, right, haranguing me. And everybody's looking at this, you know, And uh, but but he wants the coat. And I, I said to Mary, I'm not giving him the coat. I just love the coat. She said, well, don't give him the coat, no matter what happens. Old school, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, old school. You are all the style. I like it. I like what you're wearing. Give me the coat. Give me the coat. I'll cut you. I will cut you. He follow, He follows us into the shop, right? <laughs> And he, <laughs> so Mary he goes into this clothes shop right and we went in and I thought a lot right we lost him you know the next thing I hear ding and the door opens and he's standing I'm waiting for you old school I'm waiting for you outside old school and eventually we lost him but it took about an hour and a half like you know to, to shake him no, and, and like I said compliments and threats <laughs> yeah he was going to cut me I got a knife here. I got a knife. I will stick this in you. You look all the style. <laughs> and uh and, and so I got it. So when when I when I survived, like when I actually got the coat back home, I said, That's my Christmas coat. Like so when Dece- the first of December <laughs> comes round, it's a bit John Motsony as well. The very you know? John it Motsony. Very, yeah, so Mots- he was only John wearing Motsony. it on Saturday in football focus. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I kind of feel like I should have him holding up a whole nother <laughs> yeah. right? Um but yeah, so that's the story behind the coach. That, that is
3: a, a great story to finish on as well. Um, if people want to follow you and Ross, you're both
0: on Twitter now. Yeah, I yeah. joined this year actually, yeah. I joined Twitter, so it's AKA Paul Howard uh, on Twitter. That's do you my, get confused managing handle. the two of them? Oh, sometimes I'd be, sometimes I accidentally tweet as as me when I should be tweeting as Ross. Ah, we all then, do, yeah. And I do, the, and then the other way around as well and uh and then I have to go back in and delete the tweet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I've,
3: t- I've tweeted from the, the podcast account, for, like when I was meant to be tweeting off my old account, and it's only an hour later I realise I'm like, oh, it's there now. I can't delete it. People know. I get mad paranoid about but it. And like. then they say, oh,
0: why did you delete that? Yeah. You know, people do a screen grab of it, and then they say, oh, I kept
1: this. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> you know? I have the, I
1: have my own The Bulls and What's the Story. Yeah. And I, I re- Jerry Adams uh, tweeted one night saying, good night, uh, Ewa. And I retweeted from the Bulls and the Bulls coach was like, what are you, you can't be tweeting, yeah. Jerry Adams, we're, we're, we're not politically aligned. I was like, sorry, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, Didn't you're mean the it. basketball wing of champagne, <laughs> are you?
3: <laughs> In
1: my head.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: well, it's at aka Paul Howard and then at
0: Rossock. At Rossock, yeah, 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 yeah. For, for the Rosso, Carl Kelly tweets. Um. Such as they are, I mean, you won't. It's not going to change your life if you follow me onto oh, no, it. no there's
3: a few, there's a few beauty put up in fairness. Your nostalgia
1: yeah. on your personal uh, Twitter is brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like the yeah.
1: the Olympic books you were talking about. Earlier oh, on. right. You put them up.
0: You put a photo up. That That's right. Yeah. yeah we put the the cover up. I think it was, uh, uh, Daily Thompson. Yeah, yeah. And he was on the cover of it, you know, and Fatima Whitbread. Like these were the, <laughs> the heroes of my childhood. <laughs> God. <laughs> I feel so old.
3: <laughs> 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 um, Graham's at Yeah, I'm at Danjo Murray. The podcast is at WTS Pod um, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean, Podcast Republic. Anywhere, ever there's a podcast, just search WTS Pod. We're there. Facebook.com forward slash WTS Pod Ireland. It's PatrickCastle.com.
0: And Did it us. one breath?
3: I've got it down now. So yeah. I have my little system. Right? I'm going <laughs> to <Yeah>. have this <laughs> mental checklist that I have to go through.
0: Not a note in front of you. Can I just say nothing in front we, of you? You didn't read scribble.
3: that. Yeah, no, we scribble, right? And this is something that we, we've... In, in the last number of episodes, it's something that we've, we've noticed a lot, is that we, we'll scribble a lot of notes. Um, the main one Graham has, and he tends to put big stars beside it, is selfie to remind us to get a, a photo. <laughs> but if if we have notes... They tend to be ignored anyway. Cause yeah, like, yeah. We, we'll go with sign of a
0: sign of a great interviewer. Yeah, yeah. yeah you I'll guys like her, are yeah. certainly that. I love doing the podcast. I really. do. I love listening to the podcast. Uh, I do it every month. If you ask me, like you know, but it's uh, well. Hold that. That's the problem. <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> pleasure to to come in and, uh, oh, well, and thanks for that. all your help since we well, started. We'll as well, keep it up. It's um, I think I think it's the best podcast out there. You know, I well, enjoy well, listening you. to it more than any other podcast. So keep doing it. That's pure, that means a lot. So. Deadly. Thank you, Paul. That's um, deadly. But, yeah,
3: we'll, we'll we'll keep just going with a Reverend Waffle whenever we can, I suppose. That's <laughs> all we do. Like, <laughs> um, but, look, congratulations again on not only Ross, but obviously uh, I read the news today. Oh, boy. But that's it, Graham. Until next, oh, next week's Christmas.
0: Next week's Christmas.
3: Good. Ch- oh. Very quickly, can you remember the best and worst Christmas present you ever got?
0: I'm putting people on the spot now.
3: Can you remember yours?
0: Millennium Falcon, best one I ever got. Millennium Falcon, Christmas 1982. You must be
3: the one, actually, yeah, new Star Wars and all. You must be the one. 40 quid
0: life. a cost. I thought it was a fortune in those days. My dad said, too dear. And I woke up Christmas morning, and there was the Millennium Falcon. And I ju- from that moment on, I judged every moment of happiness in my life <laughs> in relation to how I felt when, when I got the Millennium Falcon. I'd always say, yeah, I'm happy, but I'm not Millennium Falcon happy, <laughs> you know?
3: You your name yours
1: <laughs> my eh uh, Peggy Bonner's kit 1990
3: yeah I was gonna I, I yeah. don't think mine was a present mine was our number one year I got two Peter Schmeichel kits got the homekeeper jersey and the away keeper jersey thought it was deadly I never got a bad prezzy well there you go American Gen we'd <laughs> <laughs> anyway Paul thanks very much pleasure Absolutely. next pleasure. week clear eyes
0: happy Christmas well, guys. oh Merry Christmas
3: Merry Christmas Merry Christmas Paul oh. Jesus we, re- we need to get on top of this Christmas You can, you
0: can add sleigh bells uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah Sound so effects bad, Yeah well.
3: Yeah Graham <laughs> Clear oil, full hearts. can lose